The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Yes, indeed. Welcome, everybody, and, and thanks for coming to this event, the March of the Machines. And um, the theme, evil artificial intelligence, uh, we all quite enjoy, or at least I quite enjoy, reading about them in science fiction. But um, lately, we've been hearing quite a lot of stirrings about this being an imminent and actually catastrophic threat to humankind. And from some quite unexpected voices, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, and last week, the astronomer royal, Martin Rees. So are they right? Or could a mind free from human prejudices and hang-ups actually help the world? Or is it all a deluded fantasy anyway? And that's the topic that we're going to be considering today. So uh, I'll start uh, with the first of our speakers, Nigel Shadbolt. He's a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of Southampton and the chairman of the Open Data Institute, which he co-founded with World Wide Web pioneer Sir Tim Berners-Lee. They always say that AI is the kind of uh, the, the, the attempt to build machines that are like the ones in the films. Okay, and since the ones in the films are mad, bad, and dangerous to know, um, you might think we might need to worry. But actually, no. This this is hyperbole. Uh, the worst kind of hyperbole. Uh, Thirty-seven years ago, when I went to a department of AI in Edinburgh to study the subject, in fact, there were only just a handful of places that even did this. Um, we had on display robots that could just about stack toy bricks or find uh, and put a peg in a hole, um, just about parse a language into its grammatical bits and pieces. Um, four decades later, we have some remarkable AI achievements. But these aren't self-aware sentient systems. These are systems that we carry around on the supercomputers in our pockets called phones. They uh, search a web of billions of pages. The programs can understand your speech. They can pull information together for you. They can recognize faces in your photographs. But they're not smart, self-aware systems. What we have done is understand exquisitely particular tasks in sufficient detail that we've built very, very impressive systems. When Garry Kasparov was beaten by a program in 1996, 
he was unnerved by the experience. He thought it was reading his mind. And that's something humans do. They ascribe to these systems lots of intentionality. But what Deep Blue had was pretty fast processing for the time. It looked millions of moves ahead. It had millions of opening and closing game, game positions. And so it could look deep into its own search space and deep into its opponents. It was given a little bit of insight about where to look in this big space of possibilities. Brute force and insight and some ingenuity with our algorithms have given us a world of truly remarkable systems. But no self-aware, no sentient thinking AI now or in prospect. We have no ability to take that chess machine. That chess machine didn't know it had been Kasparov, didn't derive any satisfaction from it. Sad, really. Um, and, uh, and certainly couldn't play a game of checkers. It had no ability to transfer that one skill into another area. And things aren't much different, and as I'm sure we'll explore as we go further uh, to think through these sets of issues, one thing we should be aware of and should worry about is the ability or the inability of us as people to put limits on what those very, very narrowly capable systems are doing, whether it's trading financial derivatives or <laughs> flying drones in autonomous control on seek and destroy missions. They don't have to be self-aware to be a real threat. Warren Ellis, a wildly successful comic book writer, seven-time Eagle Award winner, um, and uh, really has a knack for these transhumanist themes and uh, this kind of storytelling. He's also written extensively for Vice, Wired and Reuters on technological and cultural matters. Uh, science fiction has done you wrong, is the thing. Um, Skynet is a fantasy. General strong AI is a fantasy. The internet is not going to magically become conscious at some point. You can layer as many stacks of artificial neural networks uh, as you like, and they will not magically decide that it's a really good idea to build a robot Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's not going to happen. I would like us today to get into some definitions of terms um, and putting some of those fantasies in a box. I can stack chicken feathers from here to the moon. At no point are they going to reach critical mass and turn into a chicken. These are the stories you've been told about AI uh, and the possibilities of an emergence of uh, a sentient strong artificial intelligence. It's not going to happen. What we're mostly talking about is the far less sexy term, machine learning, uh, which is still very much in its infancy. The, the most powerful machine learning system we currently have, as reported last week, cannot currently tell the difference between a field of static and a king penguin. We're not <laughs> nearly there. We are not nearly there. What we're talking about mostly is deep machine learning. We're talking about recognition engines, and we're layering the word intelligence onto that. Uh, and after that, you get helpful people like Elon Musk starting to conflate intelligence with consciousness uh, and therefore with malign intent. Uh, I'm hoping today we can, we can at least come up with some strong definitions to defend us against uh, fantasies designed largely to scare us and waste our time. 
So our, our third speaker, of course, is Roger Penrose, a mathematical physicist, and of course, winner of the prestigious Wolf Prize in Physics with Stephen Hawking for their work on black holes. And he's written many best-selling popular science books, including notably The Emperor's New Mind. I think, the, the, uh, I mean, with the question is, is can, are intelligent machines a threat? You see, I have a problem with the question because I certainly don't think, well, my definition of a machine basically would be a computer-controlled robot or something like that. And my position for various reasons is that such devices would not be intelligent. So we don't have intelligent machines and on this criterion we'll never have them. We might have devices if they, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, <clears throat> you couldn't have a device of some kind which could be conscious, which could perhaps achieve, uh, I'm not saying we couldn't have a machine which could be conscious and could perhaps achieve things of intelligence that we can do. Um, I'm just saying that they won't be computer controlled devices. That computers as such wouldn't have intelligence. And the kind of reason I uh, would have for saying this is that Computers, well, they are by definition computers, and they do what are called comp computations, and these notions of computations or algorithms were put forward very clearly by Alan Turing and other logicians, and uh, there are also strong arguments that logicians, such as Turing, I may say, and Gödel, they put forward arguments which basically tell us that understanding is not something that a computational device is capable of. Now, the way I look at it is that uh, understanding is indeed something that computational device can't do, and understanding is something that requires uh, consciousness. And consciousness is something we don't understand yet. It's something uh, which I think there's strong reason to believe is not a product of computational action. There's something quite different going on. And we see both things in the brain. Um, we don't see it. We believe and have evidence for the part of the brain, which is back here, not the cerebrum, which I'm talking about the cerebellum, which has about half as many neurons, half as many, which is quite a lot, as the cerebrum has. It has far more interconnections between these neurons, and it apparently is completely unconscious. And actions, you may learn to do something, play the piano, play tennis, or something like this, and then when you, the skills are developed, your cerebe cerebellum takes over and allows you to do the more sophisticated overall things, what strategy will you use, what kind of feeling will you put into your playing, and that kind of thing. Whereas the mechanics of it all is taken over by entirely unconscious activity. Now I can quite accept that the action of the cerebellum could be maybe mimicked by a computer. Uh, there are lots of things probably in neural, uh, neuroscience which is, which is adequately describable by com computational device. But whatever consciousness is, is something quite different. And uh, it's something extremely important. If it weren't important in our actions, it wouldn't have evolved. So it's evolved for some reason. And this reason gives us qualities which we can allow us to do things that we can't do purely consciously, uh, purely unconsciously. 
And it also has something to do with setting up the unconscious device. It's a bit like the way computers work. How does a computer, how does, not how it works, but how, is, how do we use a computer? We use a computer, you have some idea, you have some thing you want it to do, you can reduce it to a calculation of some kind, put it on the machine, it does the calculation, calculation, the, the answer comes out, and then you decide what that calculation means. The meaning is not something which is part of the calculation. It's external to the calculation. So the claim I would make is that we don't have intelligent machines. Not only that, we'll never have machines which are genuinely intelligent if machine means what I'm saying it means, a computationally controlled device. We might have things which somehow maybe we'll figure out what's going on in there and maybe we'll have some kind of device which does it. I mean, I don't think, see it's anywhere within uh, what we can envisage at the moment. Maybe some latter-day Frankenstein will build something like that, but I don't think it's a threat to us. The debate. Theme one. Can we make a thinking machine? Is a thinking machine even possible? And so you've all said in different ways why you're sceptical about that, but I, I wanted to explore that in a little bit more detail. And first of all, um, it feels to me as if you're all three saying that... Uh, we don't understand consciousness and we're not going to be able to make a, a machine that thinks in the way that we do. But um, you brought up, Nigel, uh, Deep Blue and, and a machine that could mimic something very clever that we do. Yeah. And, and, and you also, uh, Warren, brought up um, uh, machine learning. And so uh, the capacity that machines now have to be able to handle masses of, of, of data, the capacity that they have to be able to learn from that, and then to be able to reproduce the sorts of language that, for example, that they can hear other people using, could we actually make machines that are sufficiently able to mimic that well, let's, intelligence? Let, I think, I think uh, well, <coughs> let's get into a, a, a sense of what these terms mean, because I think it's important uh, mm -hmm. to, to, to kind of decompose them. And uh, let, let me defend AI, because I think it's a, been a remarkably audacious enterprise to try and understand aspects of intelligent behaviour in humans and animals by trying to write programmes. And it's only when you do that you realise how poor or threadbare some of our accounts are. But, you know, this field and psychology and neuroscience has taken the standard way in science, uh, reduced complexity. It's taken areas like perception, it's taken areas like planning, speech, and it's tried to see whether we could build systems that recognise that most precious object, faces, in the way that humans recognise faces. In fact, we know a lot about how humans recognise faces at the physiological and the neural visual processing level, and it turns out to be not at all how we imagine. We're not looking at features, we're looking at spatial harmonics. We're doing something in our neurons, encoding, that has given us a powerful recognition facility in the brain. Um, the attempt to build programmes that do it like we do, cognitive emulation, has actually in general been much less successful mm. than applying um, algorithms, statistics, high-end uh, theorem proving, and lots and lots of power. I mean lots and lots of power. And uh, I remember a, a, a professor who was teaching me many years ago said, you know, there are lots of ways of being smart that aren't smart like us. Mm. Now, what did he mean by that? He meant that we can imagine building and engineering systems which will have exquisite performance levels, and we're seeing it with some of these deep uh, learning methods. But those deep learning methods, to be called neural networks, is, 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 a, is a travesty. They have, they have, they're not neural, and they're only simple networks. Okay? Um, and so we have to really think about uh, where this can take us. It will take us, I think, into a world of devices which are extraordinarily capable, 
in their tasks. It will take us into a world in which these networks of such devices, this internet of things or capable uh, uh, task-achieving software, will transform the kind of environments we live in. Mm. They will drive our course for us. They will. Douglas Adams' baby <coughs> fish will be realised in a few years' time. You know, you will literally be able to hear in pretty well real time a fair translation of somebody's spoken input in another language. Okay. These are remarkable facts. So the environment that we're building is going to be saturated with large amounts of capable information processing. And along the way, we will understand aspects of our own behaviour better, aspects. But the general theory of thinking, the general theory of intelligence, let alone what it might be to be conscious, sentient, self-aware, will be a long way away. With, there are proposals. People talk about the fact that systems of sufficient complexity, and, and the thing about computers, our computers are already extraordinarily complex. They aren't a simple machine running a program. They are stacks and layers of languages, each of which depends for its behavior on a well-running system underneath. But to reduce the Microsoft Word program to the transistors at the bottom gives you a meaningless explanation. Mm -hmm. You can't find where the paragraph was deleted in the bottom of the machine, because mm -hmm. probably its memory addresses have been moved a, a, a good amount as well. So you need layers and layers of description. And this approach to trying to decompose uh, behavior in systems, artificial and biological, will give us some insights, but not the whole deal for a very long time, okay. if at all. And probably not with the kind, as Roger was saying, with the kind of devices <coughs> we have currently in view. Okay, thank you. And uh, Roger, um, you, you said that if in your definition of machine and your definition of intelligence, then you, you can't anticipate even at some point long in the future an intelligent machine. Would your, could you imagine a definition of intelligence that would encompass this level of capability? Well, you could have something, up. I mean, we're so far away from it at the moment, it's hard to make these discussions sensible. But, I mean, I think there's something profoundly missing, which is basically consciousness. I mean, they, there's no reason to believe these devices are conscious. In fact, there's Can you be intelligent without being conscious? Well, I wouldn't say so. But, uh, but of course, it depends what you mean by intelligence. And people say artificial intelligence, and we've got it all over the place. Well, is that intelligence? You see, I don't call that real intelligence. It's a question of how you use the word intelligence. <coughs> well, in a sense, I mean, I'm thinking particularly about one example that I've come across, which is the Google Translate, or the ability to translate, yeah. as you just mentioned, <laughs> well, the, ba the Babelfish. Yes. yes and yes. Uh, it, is, it is remarkable now that, uh, 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 compared to a couple of years ago, that I can get emails in any language, and I can quickly stick them up and get a rough and not very, not very good translation, yes. but something that gives me an idea. But I've noticed that there has been changing, because it used to be just a direct dictionary translation yeah. of every word, which makes nonsense. Yeah. And increasingly, uh, the, the programs are also looking for phrases. So they're looking in a massive amount of data. When this word's used in this kind of phrase, it tends to mean this thing. And the more sophisticated you can make that, the more sentences you can, you can search for, the bigger processing power you have, the more capacity you have to mimic a real-life human translator saying, I'm getting the subtlety of meaning across here. Now, does that start to sound like intelligence? Well, it may sound a bit like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's a question of how you use the word, you see. To, to me, a, a device, I wouldn't call it intelligent if it wasn't aware of what it was doing. I mean, if a device isn't capable of being aware of it, what they're doing, I wouldn't call it intelligent. But that may be a use of words which other people wouldn't adhere to. Mm. So... Uh, Certainly, as, as Nigel was pointing out, we have these, uh, well, the 
Deep Blue was obviously able to play chess at a very high level mm. and uh, was able to beat the world champion <laughs> at chess. But it was clear what it was doing. Mm. It was doing a fantastic number of uh, calculations. It was not at all the same as what uh, Kasparov was doing. In fact, there was a very nice series of chess problems that was made up by uh, uh, David Norwood and somebody else, I forget. And, and the, there were half the problems were designed to be easy for humans and hard for computers. And the other half was designed to be easy for computers and hard for humans. The easy for computers and hard for humans were actually no point to them, but just a lot of calculation would do it. And the other ones that were hard for the computers were there's a, a, a key idea Mm. And, and it would need an awful lot of computation to do it. And there was nice examples you could see. And, and it was absolutely clean distinction. Mm. You could tell which were the humans and which were the computers. It just shows that the way that thinking, if you like to use that word, was being done in a completely different way. <coughs> now, it, it always seemed to me that consciousness is a big part of this. Mm. And certainly in translation, one of the big problems with translation is you've got to know what the thing means. Now, what does meaning mean? <laughs> and after all, that involves conscious conception. I mean, you can get a long way with phrases, I'm sure. Mm. But nevertheless, uh, there comes a point where you've got to know what the thing's talking about. And that is, is uh, an understanding of what's going on. And that involves some kind of conscious involvement. I can see that, but I'm just thinking about how I got my English vocabulary, <laughs> and in fact, my ah, vocabulary in other languages as well. That's a very good question. And the way that I got my vocabulary is by listening to people using words and, and, and understanding the context. In, no, no, hearing repetitive contexts. Yeah. So if I'm reading a book and I keep seeing the same word, I don't know what the word means, but I see it in a kind of general context. I start to soak in the meaning of it because other people have used it. And isn't that the same kind of thing but that we're describing? children pick up? I mean, it's always amazing to me how they pick up anything. Yeah. I can make a device which <laughs> which will learn to talk mm. just from interactions and yeah. probably people's <coughs> expressions mm. and all sorts of subtleties which are going on. And, and it it's probably involves the awareness of the child to a considerable degree. So I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of things we don't know here. Mm. But it, just, it feels as though that it's the same well, kind of thing. We'll be deep into linguistic uh, philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go deep into linguistic philosophy, uh, Warren, uh, do, do you think, because we're talking about, a, uh, um, uh, there was that lovely uh, phrase that you used, which is there were ways of being smart that are not smart like us. Mm. So could you see that? You said very emphatically, we're not going to, you can't make a chicken out of a a pile of chicken feathers. But could you imagine that, that there could be some kind of intelligent machines that would have a different way of being intelligent? A friend, friend I knew in uh, digital engineering used to use the phrase, be as smart as a puppy. He mm. always figured that was actually um, the best possible aspiration for any artificial <laughs> intelligence <laughs> come machine learning system. Um, recognition plus context... <clears throat> plus some low level of self-reflection, which is really what you've been talking about. Um, that would actually, for, for this friend of mine, that actually would have been a, a peak AI concept. Be mm. as smart as a puppy. And that's do you think that's really achievable? All you need. <coughs> well, they go to the toilet in people's houses. Um, no, they can learn not I to. Don't, they can learn not to. It's <laughs> not in my experience, <laughs> frankly. Um, <coughs> I think it's interesting but I also think, uh, to some extent, it's a, a deflection. This sort of thing is hugely interesting to think about, clearly. Um, and it's worth considering. So we've got some kind of um, 
benchmark of context and ideas to take into account should we come to a point where we approach a very, very strong recognition system, for instance. But it is a deflection because these things are in no, uh, no danger of self-generating. Mm. Human beings continue to be the reproductive systems of machines. When we talk about drones and the threat of them becoming autonomous in the field, to my knowledge, no one has put the kill decision on into an autonomous algorithm for drone operation yet. They are still flown by people. The algorithms are still flown by people. And when you go to Google Translate, which, don't get me wrong, is a remarkable achievement, once you've got your translation, you'll see a little note in the bottom of the window saying, if you have a better translation, add it here. <laughs> <laughs> it's all still human driven. We talk about these things as if they are alive because we anthropomorphize and we place storytelling into everything. It's just how we wired. Drones, algorithms, machine learning, recognition engines are still all projections of human agency. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So drones don't kill people, people kill people, right? Essentially. So, well, that, that can take us very nicely onto the next scene, but I can't resist just one more thing on this particular one, because you mentioned learning by puppies. And just as I brought up the language and how children learn, uh, I, I also know that, uh, that dogs are an unusual category of creatures because they appear to be much more intelligent than they actually are. Right? <laughs> so, no, um, but seriously, uh, yeah. you, you, can you can find dogs that are able to, uh, uh, chimps that will not realise that if a human is pointing, that they, they're pointing at something that they're, mm. or, 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 or are not able to understand from a human's expression that something is in the cupboard. And dogs that are capable of doing that. And uh, my understanding is that the theory is that it's because dogs have co-evolved with humans enough to get matching cues. Mm. So the chimps have a better understanding, a better intelligence, according to your definition, I think, Roger. But the dogs have built up more information over a longer time the because of the co-evolution. So the they built up a context, there. just as, the, as these kinds of machines, and so they can come across as being mm. more intelligent. Well, they're so used to people, and they're, sorry, they're used to they're used doing to that sort of thing. Exactly. And get the hang of what that means. And, <laughs> and so, and so, so it will be interesting, because I think with, as avatars become more of a feature of our experience, whether it's in healthcare, elder care, um, the office place, that awareness, just because the sheer amount of data, I mean, the sheer amount of data... Google does 30 billion searches a day mm -hmm. at the moment. 15% of those searches have never been seen before, which is actually a big number when you mm -hmm. think about it. Um, and so all the time, their, if you like, awareness, their context base is increasing. Mm. And, and, and it will be, uh, I think, possible to give the impression of contextually aware mm. um, customization in our programs that will give us a sense of 
there's something in there. Mm. I think you can, certainly you can fool people. Get, they'll get better at fooling people. Yes. And there is a danger in that, I think, because then you get to, to think it really does understand what's going on. It really has got some kind of awareness when it hasn't. Theme two. Should we, should we start to be really worried about what the thinking machines can do? So are they already a threat that we, should, we can, should take seriously? And I think you've brought up drones, you've brought up financial instruments, and also the possibility of our, our being fooled into thinking a machine is able to make decisions or has values that it doesn't actually have. So, so what do we think about that? Nigel? Well, I think it, uh, we've, uh, this is, the recurrent theme is, seems to me, not that the machines are smart, but it's the unthinking humans that scare the crap out of us. Okay? <laughs> so, um, um, and I think that's, we do need to think about limits and restraints to behaviour. And it has happened uh, in so-called um, um, uh, algorithmic trading. You know, uh, these sy trading systems can get into kind of a deadly embrace and uh, people realise they had, in some sense, to be able to pull the plug or introduce... Uh, the pause button uh, in these environments. So um, I think we will be faced with that. I mean, uh, well, I said we haven't yet seen the uh, kill decision delegated to the, uh, to the drone. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised to think there are people who think that wouldn't be uh, such a terrible thing. They would argue in terms of resilient systems and mm -hmm. what if the controller was offline and, you know, the drift into that. <clears throat> so... The real issue for me is when your technologies become weaponized. It's not unique to, to, to computer science. It's happened in physics, of course, chemistry, biology. Uh, and when weaponization takes place, you do have to think about um, treaties, even regulations sometimes, non-proliferation, what would inspection make, first strike. And these will be, in a sense, debates that the community will need to have. And if, if this, these wild um, hyperboles around what AI can do have served any purpose, it's to get the community to say, no, it's not like that, but we do need to think about how, for example, we could take Asimov's law, <laughs> you know, a robot shall not harm a human or through inaction cause a, harm to be, a human to be harmed and compile it into our devices or not. You know, that, that'll be a set of choices that we'll be needing to make. Sure, and I think, I mean, would we know if, uh, if someone had built in the, the, the kill command, the, the autonomy of a kill command into a drone? I think the great thing about that is, um, I mean, the thing we haven't talked about, we, we've touched on it, is the, is the really thrilling area, I think, of where our machines and, and four billion people currently connected on the internet give us a new kind of AI, this augmented intelligence, mm -hmm. the kind of general capability to do things together. Um, it, it's... Lots of things come out in those situations. Lots of uh, everybody uh, knows something, nobody, uh, nobody knows everything. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think we would kind of have a, a sense that uh, that uh, was creeping in. Mm. But, but the debate about how we um, build uh, limits into uh, the deployment of this new kind of technology, and it's not just robots. People think about robots. It's essentially the software, the smart software on the web. People talk about defensive cyber, offensive cyber. This is the, the ability to take small algorithms and take down a nation's digital infrastructure. Mm. That will be a bad place to get, but mm. you can bet it's being actively researched. Mm. As and also for the, for the financial instruments that you were talking indeed, about. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. Uh, Roger, you were just saying that, uh, that you felt that there was a danger of our being fooled into thinking that a machine... Yeah could be, could, could even have values or could... I think there's, there's some, this is already happening. I mean, you find that 
the fact that so many things, you try to get some information from a company and you get a robot. You know, you, get, you don't beat the people anymore. It, I suppose robots are cheaper. <laughs> but but you've, you, this is a big problem already, I think, that, it's, that, that, that you don't, I suppose companies find it cheaper to put a machine on the job than to hire somebody. And the trouble is that the, the human can actually relate to you in some ways, at least usually, <laughs> and you can get information and you can express your problems, and, and whereas a, a computer device, you just press, press three or five or whatever it yeah. happens to be, I mean, it doesn't get anywhere. I mean, it may for, for some straightforward problems, but, but I think there is this tendency to think that, well, because they're so good at chess or whatever it happens to be, computers are therefore cleverer than people, so we won't need so many people. Yeah. We'll, we'll use the computers instead. And I so think that that's already happening. So that's so what's happening to, to jobs, and, and also what, yeah. what does that do in terms of dehumanizing our relationships with Absolutely. the... Absolutely, yes. I, I think um, I, the first time I encountered what you're describing, which is a, a virtual operator, I remember I was, trying to, <laughs> I was trying to phone someone in the US, and they said, you know, if you know the extension, press this number, and otherwise say operator. And I said, operator, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I said operator. I said operator. I said operator. I said operator, and I said operator. <laughs> and he said, "Oh, okay." And he put me through. Yes. Yeah. Well, there you are. Yes. So, yeah. Making the general point, but but I think also I, I was wondering whether even a bit more in the future there is the danger that, uh, uh, that this could threaten jobs. But then we might also say, well, we have to move into the modern world and change our business models. Maybe we need to find the work that, that humans can uniquely yeah. do, and and and. Some so I, I could see that. What about if we would, you know, if we, for example, we might impute to a, an animal, this animal is experiencing this thing, we anthropomorphize, because it's behaving in a way that's making us think that. If we could do that with a machine, is there a danger that we might trust a machine in a way that could then m bring well, a danger? You, you or? bring up another question, of course, is the animal issue. I mean, I, I too personally think that animals are certainly conscious. Mm. And not all of them, maybe, but, but and we brought up the dogs, or as one of you did, mm. and, and I certainly think they are. Mm. It Maybe there's a level, uh, you know, not always as, after we're conscious when we're dreaming. Mm. <laughs> and that's not a very high level of consciousness. And, and I'm sure that, that there is a level of consciousness which goes way down in the animal kingdom. I don't, that wasn't quite the point you were making, but right. <laughs> since you mentioned the animals, yes. I thought that it was worth saying. So I think that, uh, that there is something which isn't computational going on uh, mm. way down in the mm. animal kingdom. Um, but that, sorry, I forgot. Well, the, qu the question was, yeah. might, might we be in a situation where because a, a machine was behaving like a human, we yes, trust yeah. it the way we might trust a human or there be, is expect a danger, to the... Yes, and I suppose with this movie, that <laughs> <laughs> you, you might worry that because a, a device has certain traits which fool you into thinking yeah. that it's... That, well, this can even happen with humans. You think no. <laughs> they, they <laughs> may put on expressions <laughs> that led to make you think they're Could understanding what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Warren, you're, uh, you're curling a lip a little bit about this. I'm actually still stuck on the idea of a, a new version of Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics because I think in the 21st century, the first one will probably be, please stop trying to have sex with us. <laughs> but the idea of emulating a human in that way, emulating self-reflection, mm. uh, there's a thing in the visual arts called the uncanny valley which is the closer we get to animating perfectly photographically a human, the creepier they somehow become. <laughs> yes. we are, the eyes are dead. <laughs> and we want to leave. We want to get away from them. It's wrong. 
And the idea of an emulating, an em emulation of a self-reflective yeah. human might just radiate the sense of a sociopath so strongly. There could be an uncanny valley for this where we don't necessarily think we're on the phone with a computational device. We think we're on the phone <laughs> with a psychotic <laughs> that we want to get away from. <laughs> I think, I think yeah. there's probably a curve there where, where an emulation of a self-reflective consciousness would be actually kind of disturbing to be around. Okay, well, that, that sounds slightly reassuring. What do you, what well, do you I, think? I, would just, I just think that the, we, we've kept kind of touching on the, on the really other really interesting question, which is the origin of our own awareness and consciousness uh, through evolutionary time. I mean, just what is it that has conspired to give us uh, this uh, extraordinary set of cognitive capabilities? And it's not one thing, as I said, it's, it's layer on layer of, 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 of neural uh, uh, componentry. Mm. Uh, together with an embodiment in, in flesh, with an endocrine system, you know, we feel emotions, we have adrenal glands. This whole context is, 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 the, is the organism we are, and, and it gives us these human qualities. But as you reach back, as we reach back further and further, and we've got more and more complete sense of the, of the uh, evolutionary history of animal life, you know, what problems were being solved yeah. in the early... Uh, reptilian and amphibian brains. What problems were being solved and how was that emerging in the mammalian cortex? Yeah, there really are interesting questions and I think thinking about this in terms of dealing with environments, information processing, uh, is uh, going to be one fruitful way, not the only way. And I think that uh, when we come on to, to, to the higher level questions of trust, there won't be many questions that in AI we won't want to try and find an analogue to in our computational systems. Trust is a good one. Actually, there's a whole area of AI, a sub-branch of AI, which is uh, computational trust. How, and quite important, how can you build devices and systems which know how to offer up credentials to convince other systems to trust them. You know, what does that look like? So it's surprising how in so many aspects of our uh, understanding of ourselves, there will be an opportunity to think about it in computational terms. And, and, and the deep question is, you know, whether that is enough, could be enough in the future. What is the in-principle reason why silicon is different? Theme three. Um, should we actually be thinking about how to contain the risks associated with these things? And so there's, I, I guess there's two parts to this question. One is, should we be thinking about how to contain the risks associated with the level of intelligence or the level of, of, of uh, ability, capability that we have already today or will have in the near future? And then the second part of the question is, and if we can envisage a, a, a machine that can sufficiently mimic uh, human capabilities in a more distant future, should we be setting... Um, processes in place now to try and contain that. So I'm just thinking, I mean, we, we talked first of all about the, the, the present day and we were talking about autonomous drones. I mean, are, are you scared of drones? Do you think we should be trying to put something in? Uh, no, I'm scared of the people. Mm. Um, it's certainly worth you know, having a set of thoughts to refer to should we ever uh, approach a, a, a strong enough autonomous system. Um, but they're still coded by people. I'm really much more interested in watching what the people are doing than watching what the machines are doing. I mean, we'll know when the kill decision is put into an autonomous algorithmic system in the field because it will go wrong. 
Okay. <laughs> That's comforting. It's, we we will know because it will be all over the news. There will be a, a flock of king penguins will have been murdered. <laughs> uh, what is it about you by, and king by, by a team of drones that actually should have been in, in Syria? Um, <laughs> we will know because it will go wrong, um, which is slightly horrifying. Uh, mm. I don't disagree. Um, but it will bring it will br bring the concern front and centre that it's not some magical artificial intelligence we should be frightened about. It should be the projection of human agency uh, that these things uh, are comprised of. Mm. That's and my concern. Well, I think similarly, because when you talked about financial instruments, I mean, I think we should already be frightened of that because we, uh, we, we've got to the, when we've got to the stage that the speed of light matters and the position of the, of the, of the um, instruments actually matters for, for how quickly you can get the information. There, there, you know that something's gone wrong. A human would say that's, that's not right. Yeah, there was, there was a financial institution that was actually trying to, to game that. They wanted to build a neutrino cannon mm. on the other side of the planet um, that would beam Seriously. that that would that would beam uh, financial transactions through to to New York. Essentially, it was a money gun. <laughs> 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 but of course, controls are being played on placed on algorithmic training yeah. uh, trading. Excuse yeah. me. Uh, it, it, it's always closing the door after the horse has bolted, mm. but at least someone's realised there was a door that could be closed. But in that case, hu humans, if, if humans had been responsible for those transactions, they would have known that something was going wrong sooner, right? Uh, yeah, but they don't find out until afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're already in this situation, I think, and, and again, people don't think of it necessarily as the appliance of AI, but it most assuredly is. The algorithms that are used and the processing powers that are used and the methods to deal with the bulk collection of everybody's telephone data mm. Mm. is an appliance which has very material concerns and worries to us now. And it's, uh, yeah, and what do you do when you're in charge of agencies which are meant to keep you secure uh, and you have all of this technological power at your disposal and AI data mining algorithms to go and find potential patterns? Well, you start to, um, you start to forget that, you know, keep secure to maintain liberty. Okay, mm. and you've got to ask yourself the question around um, uh, what do we need to know as a consenting population <laughs> to kind of feel content with this? Um, and there reaches a point where there's there's a social uncanny valley. In fact, uh, it's what stopped uh, contextual mobile computing from happening in the full flower that it should have done. People were happy giving away privacy to a certain point, and then said, "No, this is really getting weird." Mm. Uh, and so we've had like the end of uh, bulk phone collection in the domestic US at any mm. rate, supposedly. Uh, we've had Facebook having to uh, redraft their privacy um, legislations. Uh, this legislation against Google in Europe, uh, mm. about Google. There, there's a social uncanny valley, I, I feel, where people say, stop, that's enough, I'm not comfortable anymore, uh, in a big enough chunk of the populace to slow and these things down so that there does become a moment of consideration. And, that, and that's not really being afraid of the machines or the capability, that's being afraid of what the people will do with the information Yeah, but most again. people contextualise it as the machines. Mm. It's mm. much easier to talk about the frightening machines gathering all our data uh, mm. rather than, you know, Mark Zuckerberg taking a bath in telephone numbers or whatever. Mm. You know. <laughs> Is that what? what he does? Oh, probably. <laughs> I don't know because he bought all the houses around his house. <laughs> he did, actually. So there is no direct line of sight to his house. He did do that. God only knows what he's doing in there. <laughs> Let's not speculate for the moment. I do not want to think about... 
What Mark Zuckerberg Those is doing in his together, bath. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it, with him, or without robots. It's him and Elon Musk with a big pile of dead bodies in a generator. So. I, I think I'd rather think about it involving, uh, involving robots, but I've, I, I just actually don't want to think about it at all. So, uh, <laughs> Roger, what, what could we do con to contain these risks? Well, I think, uh, I, mean, I think the way you phrase the question at first is a, a different one. I, I mean, people have been talking quite correctly mm. about dangers that are around to do with these devices, which are not intelligent, really. It's the human beings. Mm. And so I agree with, with these issues, and they're very important. But I think the question you're raising is in the remote future, when we perhaps understand what's going on, and some kind of thing is made, which is actually conscious is actually intelligent and so on and of course it would raise i mean th this is pure science fiction here because we ha we're nowhere close i should say but maybe one should think about these issues and there is a question that's often brought up and saying well why do we need artificial intelligence and one of the reasons well you can send it down the radioactive mine or whatever it is mm -hmm. or you can send it up to some distant star and you don't have to worry about bringing it back because it will be artificially intelligent and will be doing whatever it needs to do out there but of course, if it really is conscious, there's a moral obligation you have to that device. So a whole lot of issues would come up which are simply not present now because they aren't conscious. Mm. If they were really conscious devices, you would have to worry about treating them right. You'd, you wouldn't be allowed to turn them off without their permission. Mm. And all sorts of things. You see, there'd be the, the thought police or whatever it is would tell you, no, no, you can't have that machine because it's, it's aware and you're hurting it. Mm. <laughs> all these questions. That's true. They're not with us <coughs> now, fortunately. <laughs> but, but if you're talking about the remote future when maybe we do understand what's going on and maybe the latter-day Frankensteins will have... have running the place and, and you have to worry about these questions. I mean in a way you, Nigel you brought up the, the, the laws of robotics but Asimov also wrote about the, the, the capacity the possibility of murdering a robot it yes, was indeed. its unique positronic brain meant yes. that a, a murder of a robot was almost as serious well perhaps as serious as a murder of a human. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion visit iai.tv Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.